Good morning again. Welcome to the Springs. If you're visiting, my name is Peter, and I serve on the super team. Better than the Lakers, better than the Clippers. It's our elder team that leads this church. Today we're in week 14 of our series, a study in the book of Romans that we're doing alongside our sister church in Austin, Mosaic. Today we wade deeper in to one of the deepest and richest chapters in all of the Bible, Romans chapter 8. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet with me to honor God's word. We'll be in Romans 8 verses 26 through 30. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be, Jesus, the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The word of the Lord. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Please add a supernatural blessing to the reading of your word that's beyond our thoughts, our best intentions, far beyond and deeper than our understanding. Lord, we do need to understand your text, your, your living word. We, we need your help in that, in understanding and applying your word. We couldn't do it without you helping us. But even more than we need to understand and apply, we need to trust that you're working and you're forming us, whether we understand and apply it or not. So help us to trust you more. Amen. Amen. If you're taking notes, I have a long title, and that is, my title is, The Clay, the Potter, and the Perfect Pot. Now, I'm going to work through our text little by little in small chunks of our five verses here. And as I do, I'll be covering three basic ideas. Three things are this, the clay, the potter, and finally, the perfect pot. Now let's start off with the clay. This imagery about the clay and the potter, obviously I didn't get from Romans 8. But as I studied and meditated on Romans 8 and saw the powerful hand of God at work in our redemption and what he's doing in world history and restoring a people to himself and how much he seems to be in control even of the hard things in forming a people for himself, I couldn't help but think of the imagery of the clay and the potter that God spoke elsewhere in Scripture, namely Jeremiah 18. I'm going to read that first, verse 6 for you. God says to, the, to Jeremiah, he says, Behold, like the clay 
in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. See, after a period of blatant rebellion against God, the people of Israel had killed their relationship with God and in essence were, as a result, dead in their sins. They had severed the connection from their very life, which is God. But God was saying, metaphorically, to Jeremiah about the people. He said, basically, can I not take a spoiled and dead lump of clay and form it into something that's even better? Am I not God? Can I not do that? And if God can do that with the nation of Israel who had broken their covenant, their special covenant with God, how much more is he doing that in the perfect, eternal, new, better covenant that he makes with the nations that are far off? The peoples of the earth like you and me. Those of us who are also like clay, of sorts formless and void, weak and ignorant in our capacities, but valuable in our worth. Now, it's probable that weak and ignorant aren't your go-to adjectives in describing yourself any more than they are mine. But let's look at our verse. In regards to us being clay and weak and ignorant, let me show you where I see that. The very start of our verse in Romans, verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. That's where I get weak. He helps us in our weakness. For we do not know, that's where I get the ignorant part. We don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is breathtaking if we'll slow down and consider the implications of this. It's a lot easier to consider how such a loving God helps us. Easier than considering how we need help because we're so weak. It's hard to admit that part. It's a lot easier to celebrate how wise and sovereign is the mind of God than it is to understand and consider how foolishly and dangerously unwise we are. After all, it says he graciously searches our hearts. He knows us. He helps us literally to pray. But the implication of that is that we're virtually incapable of honestly searching our own hearts. We're helpless. But the problem with our helplessness is we don't often know that we're helpless. It's the most helpless moments sometimes where we think we're so strong and we're so proud of ourselves. And even if we knew that we're helpless, we, we, we stop short at the generalities and ambiguities of our helplessness. We don't know our helplessness enough to know even how to ask for help. It says we don't know how to pray as we ought. We're clay. Now look at the picture that I found on Reddit. This is a picture of red clay mud. There's a guy in Georgia on Reddit. Not that I'm a Reddit geek all the time, but sometimes. He was complaining about the house that he had moved into, and the the builders left some 
construction red clay mud on his side. And it basically, it turned out into a pretty significant inconvenience to him. And he was trying to figure out, what do I do with all this red clay? To him, it's an inconvenience. But through a different lens, maybe it's not mud. Maybe what you're seeing here is the materials that can be sifted and cleaned and formed and heated to become something more like this, red clay pots, beautiful artistry. Now, my point is this, that naturally, whether we're talking about mud or we're talking about any general circumstances in our lives, naturally, we're going to see what appears to us now. But God sees what he's forming it all into. We don't have to have any sort of condemnation on ourselves for not seeing what God sees. But we can place peace on ourselves by submitting to him that he has a better vision than we have. We look into the world and we see dirty inconvenience and burden. But God sees his handiwork in the process. We look at our lives, our nation, history itself. We're not apt to seeing anything remotely redemptive through our own vision or perspective. 3,000 years ago, we would have looked out at the Judean pasture lands and seen an overly emotional and strangely aggressive little guy shepherding the flocks. We would have just seen that, but God was seeing a king being formed in that very place. Or fast forward to A.D. 71, we might have looked and seen the really bad stuff happening to God's people, unfair, unjust things, and we would have seen just the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. But God did not see the destruction of the temple. He saw the expansion of the temple through the destruction of what we saw as the temple. He he saw the expansion of faith, his temple, his presence in his people by grace through faith, globalizing in that moment. Just like he promised, the expansion of the garden through people who placed their faith in Jesus. Or fast forward to the 18th century, we might look and have seen John Newton and seen a slave ship owner that needed to be judged and condemned. But God, God saw a moldable child that he would grant repentance, that would be broken and contrite before God and receive the love and grace of God and spill it out. He would even write hymns like Amazing Grace. He would contribute to the global abolition of slavery. That's what God saw. Or today, we might see the communist Chinese government suppressing and torturing Christians. And we see a tragedy. We see a roadblock. But God sees his promise being fulfilled, his power being projected, his kingdom being expanded. Or we might see today in our own nation the apparent decline of religion as we know it. But God sees a unique opportunity for true faith to emerge like never before, unhinged from the political limitations that we unknowingly place on his faith. See, we might see certain things in our lives, our nation, that just seem muddy right now. Maybe they're not good. Maybe they're the circumstances today alone, if we were to take them just in a vacuum. Maybe 
it is not good. Maybe it's the opposite of good. Maybe what we see and what we're going through is objectively bad. Maybe you're wading through certain sin habits that you just can't break. You're broken by it. You hate yourself. You feel defeated. Maybe you're clinically depressed, anxious. Maybe you're feeling apathetic or lonely. Maybe you're in a dead-end work situation. Maybe it's just not good. And no positive thoughts or mindfulness is going to change that fact. Maybe you're right. It's not good. But the question is, what good can God form out of it? What good can he do? What good does he intend to form? And those are good questions. And it's, it's understandable that you don't have the answers to that question. And God doesn't expect you to. You're clay. He's the potter. He knows what he's doing. We don't have to know what he's doing to trust what he's doing. Now, this is where we have to step back from the illustration for a second to clearly highlight that when we're talking in Romans 8 about how God is, is using difficult things, all things, to, to enact his good plan, we're not just talking about disconnected, impersonal theology. Or, or in Jeremiah 18, he's not just talking about soulless clay. He's talking about people that he forms like clay. When we read deep texts like this, don't overcomplicate it to be something other than a loving father with a God-driven power, because he's God and father. That blows our mind. He drives his power to create people. And he calls us out, verse 29, in order that Jesus might be the firstborn of many brothers. He wants to recreate all sorts of people and multiply people that were known, our new identity is known by his mercy and his grace. And he calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And he doesn't just leave us there. He grows us. He forms us. He disciplines us. Hebrews 10, he, anyone who is without discipline is an illegitimate child. Well, there are no illegitimate ch- children in the kingdom of God. If you're suffering, if you feel like you're being disciplined, it's affirmation that you are his, not that you're not. God is forming children. He loves us. So don't, don't impersonalize doctrines, like rich doctrines like this. We're not just pawns for theological illustration. We're not just projects of God. We're children that he wants to form, that he wants to trust him. And when we, when we process deep theological truth, like Romans 8, like predestination, don't forget that we're talking about a loving father who elects to, who, who chooses to redeem sinners irrespective of our performance or our awareness of what he's doing. Our performance or our awareness. Now, it's helpful to think about my kids in this regard, because if this can be true for my children, then how much more for us as children of the Heavenly Father? My kids don't have to perform for me before I love them. I love them before they could do chores at the house. I I love them before I saw their cute faces. If if we could even project cuteness as some sort of uh, 
subconscious performance. And this is important to know, that God the Father chose a people for himself. The doctrine of sovereign election should do for us that we don't have to be performing for him. He loved us before we could do any good. In fact, only when we were doing bad. That's when he, he meets us. He projects his love upon us. He chooses us. He reveals his word to us when we could do no good. And when you're doing your worst, this is when you can feel most secure in this doctrine. It's when it tastes the sweetest. When you, you can awaken to a type of trust in your darkest moments, in your most shameful moments that makes the richness of this doctrine and the grace of God in general all the more sweet. We don't perform for him. That's what this doctrine, thinking about this doctrine, God chooses sinners to project his love on, and he glorifies us to be with him. The next thing it should help us to see is God's not waiting on our awareness of all this to do what he's meant to do anyway. And I think about my kids with this too. Sorry, guys, but y'all have very little, little awareness about what life is about. Kids in general don't have a, an adult perspective or really any perspective uh, of what the development of being a human being is all about. But though the, the awareness of children is tiny, it doesn't mean that their value is small. They don't concern themselves with how they're going to develop the necessary character to take on all the challenges of the complex world that we live in. Their concern is, how do I get me some ice cream tonight and stay up a little bit later for the movie? That's what they're worried about. It's not their job to wonder about how they're going to develop for tomorrow. That's more like my job. I am serving God as an under-shepherd of my children. Or in our reference to tie it in, I am the assistant to the potter. Not to be confused with assistant to the regional manager. That's, that's something else. If, hey, if you got that, you just, we watch the same show. That's the office reference. But I, I am to help in their development. And I don't need their awareness of virtue to be in the position to help develop their virtue. I care more about their virtue as human beings then I care about their comfort, which I care a little bit about, just less than their development and strength. And if we understand this about human parenting, how much more can we be secure and trust God with what he's doing, even if we don't understand it? Remember, Jesus used the whole parenting metaphor to appeal to our trust. Remember, he said, if you, though you are sinful, I think this is Matthew 6, Though you are sinful fathers, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more the heavenly Father will give you the Holy Spirit and grow you. See, we're the clay, but he is the potter. The potter. In our passage, all three persons of the one Trinitarian God are present in these five verses, actively enacting redemption or, as it were, forming out of clay, these beautiful vessels. It even says, let's go back to the start of our passage, that God even forms our prayers to be the right kind of prayers. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. 
He searches our hearts and knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Isn't that great? Not according to our misplaced awareness of what's important, but according to the will of God, he perfects even our prayers. How wonderful is that? That should blow our minds. God knows your heart more than you know your heart. But even better than that, he knows what your heart should be. And that's how he directs your prayers to be like. Isn't that amazing? My prayers and my best intentions amount to a muddy mess. I don't know about you. But he's not relying on my best intentions. He's driven by his best intentions for me. He's a good father. He's a master potter. Now, we're going to come back to verses 28 and 29, but in the realm of, in general, how just masterfully God forms creation, how he's in the driver's seat and never will not be, let's just fast forward to verse 30 real quick. Those whom he predestined, don't get super hyped by that word. It, it just means to know beforehand, right? Those who he foreknew, he also called And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Three times, he also. The repetition and consistency in this verse is probably the best grammatical representation for the utter control that God has over the universe. Now, I realize that not everyone's super comfortable. Not everyone is super comfortable talking about the utter sovereign control that God has over the universe. I want to just say, though, as politely as I can, that God doesn't somehow like need our comfort as permission to go on being God. Our, our ability to, to trust more aligns us with reality more. But he's going to go on being God and electing and predestinating and doing all those things anyway. Our ability to be secure in that determines our own peace and nothing else. God is God. There is a God-held stability when our pain or our weakness or our ignorance might cause us to try to feel unstable Knowing that God is God anyway gives us a stability that our circumstances don't have to dictate our position or our disposition. God is God. In this verse, there's only one sentence subject. It's God. In your life, there's only one protagonist. Now, there might be multiple antagonists like the devil or most often you if you're like me. But there's one protagonist. It's God. He also. And look closely at this verse. Notice the intentional omission of the word some. It doesn't say that some whom he predestined, he called. It says just he also. There's no some. Everyone that God calls and justifies will stand with him in glory. God is a God that finishes that which he starts. Philippians 1.6, I am confident that he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. He's God. God the potter 
doesn't waste any mud. He doesn't waste any mud. He doesn't, he doesn't stop short with individual children. And he doesn't waste any of the things that we suffer. It all is contributed to glory. Now, 12 years ago, I think, 10 years after being a Christian, it was 2007, it was a year after my wife and I got married, and I was in this position where I thought, okay, I'm 10 years into the faith now, I'm pretty much already formed here, like, I'm good, now just, God use me, because I'm an awesome weapon, like, good thing you got me on your team, God, so I thought I, I thought I was all good to go, and I was going on mission, I was, I went to Mexico, and and uh, was being used in, in our Every Nation campus outreach there. I came back with, uh, with some pain. It, was, it started off with a parasite, and then my body reacted with a lupus reaction that left me crippled for four months and in pain for a lot more months after that. In those months, I lost 40 pounds just from muscle atrophy. It was too painful to lift limbs and things like that. And I wasn't sure if I was going to make it. Turns out I did, if you wondered. But in those moments, one of the worst things that I was suffering was people praying to me, praying for me out of religious anxiety rather than out of the peace of the Holy Spirit. And if anyone's ever suffered and had maybe well-meaning people, super hyper-holy people pray for you, you might know what I mean. But listen, we can forgive them. But I just had to banish a lot of people praying for me. I actually made a rule. If you're four years or older, you can't pray for me. Eventually, I had one prayer for me that gave me overwhelming peace. It was a man that was close to my life. It was a pastor named Paul at Mosaic Church that he was there with me for months and months and months, just crying with me, not saying much. But he finally prayed for me, and he prayed. I'll never forget his prayer. It's been formative in my life. He said, God, I trust that you will heal Peter at the right time. But also, God, I trust that you won't waste any of the pain that he's already suffered, but that all of it will be used for your glory. After he prayed, not much changed physically for me. But the peace that I felt spiritually in that moment gave me faith for healing and faith for suffering at the same time. A deeper trust in God. And God did heal me. And he has healed me many times since then. But the peace that he's given me is better. The glory that I've even seen since then that God has revealed through the suffering has been amazing. And as far as our verse, our passage, and how God is sovereign and he chooses to to call people out of darkness but not leave us there but grow us, suffering in everyone's scenario is a part of the mix. Even go back to the potter and the clay thing. When, when God is forming clay, at what point does it become pottery? It has to go through the kiln. I have a picture of a kiln here. It's a little fuzzy, but most kilns are heated to around 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. In case you're not a a meteorologist or a climatologist, you know, if you don't have a perspective for how hot that is, it's even hotter than the Texas summer sunshine, 2,000 degrees. In a serious sense, to grow you, God will 
always turn up the heat. He not only permits, but he causes the bad things to work for your good. Everyone take a deep breath and get ready for one of the best verses in the Bible. Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. You can say this with me. For those who are called according to his purpose. Say it till you memorize it. Say it until you silence everything else in your life that disagrees with it. Let's say it again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. It starts out with, we know, right? Remember two verses earlier? It says about how we don't know, right? What to pray for as we ought. But now here it says, we know. We know that God is a potter that forms things. He doesn't make mistakes. Do we know how? No. Do we know why? No. Do we know what God knows about even our minute circumstances? No. But do we know that God? You might not know. You might not know what God knows, but you can know God. You can trust God. We need to be able to better distinguish between what we don't know or don't have to know versus what we can and should know. We lend way too much anxiety to trying to know the things we don't need to know. And we devote far too little faith to trusting the one that we do know. I challenged you a few weeks ago, let the roots of your trust sink down deeper than the roots of your understanding. Trusting his divine sovereign mind is our task. Understanding it is not. And I'm confounded, even as I'm so amazed, that we serve an intentional God that really does cause all things to work together for the good or the one of the first English translations of this, the 1599 Geneva Bible, says that God causes all things to work for the best of those who follow him, are called according to his purpose. And when it says all things work together, this word, English, two English words translated work together, come from the Greek word synergeo, which might sound familiar to you. It's where we get our English word synergize. Synergizes the interaction or cooperation of two or more organizations, substances, or other agents to produce a combined effect that's greater than the sum of the separate effects. That's a lot to think about, but wait a minute for a second. Those other agents in my life that I think are foreign to me, these things like, God, how could this thing or this person or this coworker be a good ingredient for my growth in my life? It just can't be. But God is saying, no, no, I want to bless you more. And God wants to bless you more through today's pain than you would be blessed had the pain never come at all. God wants to bless you more through today's pain than you would be blessed had the pain never come at all. Moment of introspection. Can you go with me here? Can you look back on your life and think of any examples or circumstances that you would have immediately discarded had you had access to the easy button. 
but that now you're glad you didn't, right? Can you think of examples like that? Like something that you would have totally run away from if you had the power, but you didn't, and you're glad that you went through that because you're stronger. How would your life be now if you could have pushed the easy button? Better or worse? Would you even be following Jesus? Have you thanked God for that pain yet? Maybe not. Maybe today is your moment. And, and we're not going to take a praise break right now, but today can be a praise day. A day for you to say, God, that which I suffered in the past and what you're forming out of it, I know enough to praise you and enough to apply that to the future, to trusting you right now. We can give a little upgrade to our souls. I'm going to read this again. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Notice that there are some conditions listed here. God loves all people unconditionally. But that doesn't mean that all people walk with God, right? It doesn't mean that all people see salvation, not that all people are going to heaven. God loves all people, but it doesn't mean all people love God and are called according to his purpose. Now, I realize that considering this is a little bit discomforting. It is. Often I hear questions like, well, what about the people that God doesn't choose? Most often I hear these questions as somewhat of like a scoffing cop-out, right? I just don't think that this question is our primary burden as Christians. Our, again, our burden is to trust him. I've never heard of anyone who says, what about the people who have not heard this, except for the people who are hearing it? Everyone who deflects to the question of those who have not heard the message are those who have heard the message. So what that means is that everyone here, you can draw a circle around yourself. You're not responsible for anyone else. You're responsible for you. Everyone in here, whether you were dragged to church by a friend and you consider yourself a skeptic or you're, you've already crossed the threshold of faith and you're a Christian, what all of us have in common, except that we're, we're alive, we're breathing, our hearts are still beating, thank you, Jesus. What we all have in common is that we have been chosen by God to come to this place where we're hearing his word, graciously chosen by God to be able to hear his word and respond with faith and surrender to his love. It was his choice to give us this opportunity, and now it's our choice with how we would respond. Why? What's his purpose in all this? Well, final thing is the perfect pot. Jesus is the perfect pot, but he is into making replicas, taking us through things that make us like him. That's a great purpose he has. He's into making replicas. Jesus was eternally in the Godhead. The master potter chose to become clay in order to redeem the rest of creation. He, he entered into creation, lived a perfect life, but then entered willingly into the fiery kiln. He had already lived the life that we should have lived. 
And yet he subjected himself to the agonizing heat of our judgment and died the bloody death that we should have died in our place. And he rose again from the dead so that his inconquerable life would be granted to dead sinners. And that we would be his whole new creation, his, his sons and daughters and brothers and sisters, that we would be human beings designed after his recreation and under his matchless mercy. And this was the plan of the Father all along. This is, it's not like it was plan B, like, oh, they messed up. Like, what am I going to do with this? This was the plan all along. Verse 29, for those whom the Father foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus has the power and the intention and the will and the drive to create all sorts of followers who will worship him and him alone. The whole purpose of history is God forming people to project more Jesus in the universe. He wanted to create a people for himself that would look like Jesus, suffer like Jesus, triumph like Jesus. After all, think, does this passage apply to Jesus as well? Does it not? Does Jesus love God the Father? Is Jesus called according to God's purpose? And Jesus suffered more than any other man. And Jesus has seen more good work in him and through him than in the other man. And this is the same Jesus who says, take heart. In this life there will be troubles, but take heart for I have overcome the world. And so when, when you feel like you're not overcoming, when you're suffering and you're, you have many troubles, you're right on track. You're just in an earlier chapter of, of your, the book that I'm writing than you knew. You're not missing it. You're walking through the shadow of death, the valley of the shadow of death, but I'm here and I'm with you. On the night that Jesus was betrayed.